So, welcome everybody. Uh, we've been going through this book, the uh, An Open-Hearted Life, for so, quite some time now, and uh, we're we're getting towards the end. <laughs> but uh, even if you haven't been here for the first part of the book, the you know just coming now, it, the topics are. Uh, they're easy to jump into, so I don't think you'll have a problem understanding things. Let's just uh, come back to watching our breath for a minute and let, letting the mind settle before we have the talk. And since our motivation is the most important part of any action we do, let's share the uh, Dharma this morning with the motivation of compassion for all living beings and a determination to do whatever we can to lessen their misery and to contribute to their heart happiness. And in that way, uh, may we make a positive contribution to the lives of others and to society in general. Okay. So the chapter that we're on today is called Survival of the Most Cooperative. Yeah, you're used to uh, survival of the fittest, okay? Uh, But this is a little bit different. So I'll read uh, from the chapter and then explain a little bit as we go along. Okay, so some people see evolution in terms of survival of the fittest, and use it as a reason to be competitive. Interestingly, when I was in uh, Europe a few years ago, and I said this, a scientist came up to me afterwards and said, no, that's not what uh, Darwin said. That is an American interpretation (laughs) of it. But in Europe, they, they don't say that that's what Darwin said. So I find that quite interesting. It's saying a little bit about the American personality, isn't it? Yeah. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, however, speaks of survival of the most cooperative and points to ants and bees as examples of this. One ant cannot survive on its own. It needs its fellow ants and must work together with them to provide food and shelter for the entire ant colony so that all of them will survive. We used to have a couple of big anthills right on the path up here. I don't know what happened. They aren't there now. I mean, the hills are, but the ants aren't. But you could see these guys. Wow, they were busy, you know, and they were working for the benefit of the entire group. It's the same with the bees. They need to cooperate to construct a hive, make honey, care for the queen, and protect the eggs. If the bees in one hive formed factions, 
blamed each other and fought to determine who was the most powerful, then all of them would die. Okay, now compare that to human beings. Yeah, substitute the word human beings. If human beings in one planet formed factions, blamed each other, and fought to determine who was the most powerful, then all of them would die. Look at the the amount of people who, uh, the number of people who die from wars, because human beings do that. But because bees care for each other, communicate, and work for the common good, they all survive and the hive thrives. Okay, it is the same with humans. Cooperation enables all of us to thrive. If the ants and the bees can cooperate for the common good, surely we human beings with our sophisticated intelligence can find a way to do this. You would think, yeah, but it seems like we often use our sophisticated intelligence to cause ourselves and others more suffering. Yeah. Compassion is vital, and compassionate communication is one tool to bring it about. Gee, they should put that in big letters in in the Senate, in the Congress, in the White House. Don't you think? Yeah. What role does competition play? There are two types of competition. One in which we compete with others, the others in which we compete with ourselves. When we compete with others, our focus is on winning. Yes, we want to win. We don't want to be a loser. Okay. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the thing is, we want to be the top one. Okay. When we compete with others, our focus is on winning. As a result, we may not enjoy the activity very much. And in our attempt to win or dominate, we may be rude, to say the least. Okay. For example, in conversation, we may not really listen to what the other person is saying and just wait for a pause so that we can express our opinion. Who does that? At work or school, we may hold back information that might be useful to others or refrain from helping them even when the opportunity presents itself. My brother went to medical school and he told me that before some of the major exams, different students would check out the most important books so that others in the class would not have access to them and not do as well on the exams. Okay. I thought becoming a doctor meant benefiting people, which would mean that you would hope that your fellow medical students would do well. Mm -hmm. Another wrong conception down the drain. While in some cases, uh, this type of competition makes everyone work harder, It may also result in damaged relationships, hurt feelings, arrogance, and self-recrimination. We compete, in quotations, with ourselves by trying to better ourselves and develop our skills, not because we want more wealth or a better reputation, but because we genuinely care about others and want to contribute to their own well-being. Okay, so competition with ourselves means that we're trying to improve ourselves and how we do. But again, it's not so we can compete better than others and score better than them, but because we want to improve our own talents and capabilities and be able to make a positive contribution to the lives of others. The key here is our motivation. 
instead of allowing our self-centeredness free reign, we consciously generate a compassionate motivation. We work hard to develop our particular talents so that they can be used to improve the quality of life for everyone. Each of us has unique talents and abilities, and the quality of everyone's life is increased when we increase them and use them with a compassionate motivation. So if we recognize that we all have our own unique talents and abilities, then the fact that other people are better than us in some areas is not something harmful to us, but something useful because they can uh, fill in the blanks, so to speak, uh, because they know more about us in certain areas. Yeah. And so we can depend on their knowledge and abilities um, that benefit all of society. And then also we don't need to compete with them because we know we have our own knowledge and abilities that can contribute to their welfare. Okay. Okay. Then the reflection from this chapter, which is a really short chapter, is um, consider a time when you adopted a competitive mindset. Would it have been just as effective or even more so to be cooperative? So think of a situation in your own life where you were competitive and did it really pay off? Or would being cooperative have been better? Yeah. As you identify such situations, consider how you might behave if you were trying to co-op, if you were to try cooperating with the other person with compassion instead of competing with them. How would focusing on cooperation change your motivation and your behavior? How could it change the way that you experience the other person and their behavior? Because if we approach something with a competitive attitude, we only look at the other person in terms of how we rank in regards to them if we can do better, if they are going to do better, how can we do better than them, and and so on. Yeah, and we see things just through that little periscope, which really influences our our interactions with these people. Yeah, whereas if we have a motivation of compassion and cooperation, we see the other party in a completely different way. They are no longer a rival. They are somebody that we can work with. And if we see them as somebody we can work with for the mutual benefit of ourselves and them and everybody else, then we will be able to find a way to work together. Okay. Would cooperation or competition bring you the most satisfaction in the long term? That is an important question. Okay, so it's really good here. Think of times in your own life, yeah, when you've had a competitive mind. Did it bring you happiness and satisfaction? Or were you on edge, always comparing yourself to others, always fearful that they would be better? Yeah. Did it bring satisfaction? Did it bring peace in your mind? And if you were to work in a cooperative manner with that person, how would that bring about a different experience for you as well as for them? Okay, I think this is another thing that needs to go on our our mirrors. You might notice that the mirrors in our bathroom have little things, yeah? So this kind of thing might might be good to put on it. (laughs) Okay, so since that chapter was short, we're going to do another chapter, um, which is much longer. We'll see how well we do. This chapter, uh, 53, 
is called compassion and attachment relationships. Okay, so it's written by Russell, who is a professor of psychology uh, and also a clinical psychologist. He sits Eastern, so some of you may know him, and he's been here to the Abbey. So he wrote this chapter. Okay, so the word attachment has different meanings that depend, uh, depending on the context in which it is used. Okay, in Buddhism it has one meaning. In psychology it has another meaning, okay, that are quite different. Okay, in Buddhism the term refers to the unhealthy tendency to project good qualities onto people or things to exaggerate their good qualities and cling to them with the expectation that they will make us truly happy. So in Buddhism, the word attachment is referring to a very sticky mind that uh, exaggerates or projects good qualities on an object or person that isn't that those qualities aren't there, but we think they are, and then it's like we glam onto that person. I need to be with them. I want to be with them. I can't live without them, and so on and so forth. Okay, so uh, this leads to unrealistic expectations that they're always going to meet our needs. They're always going to be there for us. And then, of course, they aren't. Why not? Because they're human beings. Yeah. And they never agreed to, uh, to be everything we want them to be. And we never asked them to be everything we want them to be. We just assume that they would. Okay. So this is our problem. Okay. So this often leads us to have unrealistic expectations, to grasp onto our preferred version of reality and become upset when things don't turn out the way we like. Oh, familiar story, isn't it? Okay, in psychology, yeah, the word attachment is used in a very different way. In this case, it refers to the nature of our interactions uh, with others, particularly our, uh, our caregivers when we were very young. In, and these interactions uh, can profoundly uh, impact our lives. And this is the way that we will be talking about attachment in this particular chapter. Okay, so when I use it word attachment in this chapter, don't think of the Buddhist meaning. And I say this because many of you are very familiar with that. Instead, we're looking at it in terms of the psychological meaning uh, of, of really connecting, being able to connect with others in a healthy and safe way uh, when we're little. Okay, so starting with John Bowlby. Uh, modern researchers in psychology and related fields have looked closely at the nurturing interactions between caregivers and their children. Okay. So these interactions are vitally important in helping us learn to manage our emotions and to form and maintain healthy relationships. So the whole process of socialization the whole process of learning how to relate to other living beings starts from the moment we pop out of the womb, you know, and, and we get all sorts of conditioning that will shape how we uh, look at situations how we, and how we feel and how we act later on. Okay, but this is not the only conditioning we have. Okay. So we're not just about, you know, saying let's just look at things psychologically uh, because from a Buddhist viewpoint, there's also conditioning that we bring with us from our previous lives. There's also the karmic imprints we bring with us from our, our previous lives and some of the mental habits that we've had that we bring with. But here we're talking 
uh, primarily about the conditioning in this life. But let's not forget that this isn't the only conditioning and that we do not have to be trapped by our early childhood conditioning. Okay, our early attachment relationships even affect the growth of our developing brains, shaping the brain growth in areas involved with regulating emotions and with empathy. These early relationships with our caregivers uh, could be parents or, you know, whoever, grandparents, aunts and uncles, neighbors, whoever took care of us when we were really little. So uh, these early relationships with our caregivers and how we remember and make sense of them also shape how we'll experience and relate to other people and our understanding of ourselves in relation to them. So it's not just the early relationships with our caregivers as if they are objectively existing uh, situations that everybody responds to in the same way, okay? Because it says here, how we remember those relationships and those interactions with caregivers, yeah? So, you know, we, we selectively remember things and we see things in different way. And we describe them in different ways. We make sense of them in different ways. All all of this comes after the interaction. So it's not like whatever happened when we were little, you know, says is the conditioning and that's it. It's how we as individuals respond to that conditioning. And people can have the same interactions and respond in very different ways. People can have the same events happen and interpret them in very different ways. Yeah, we know this, don't we? Just even from how when we discuss things now with people, we see things in one way, other people see things in another way. Okay, so... uh, So again, we want to get out of this thing that um, says that it's just one experience or one interaction or one event when we were little and then that is fatalistically determining the rest of our lives and how we react and we're forever trapped by it. It's not like that. Yeah, there's so many causes and conditions going on all the time, you know, and so much depends on how we interpret something, on what details in a situation we pick out to remember. Okay, so we have to also check what's going on in our mind regarding these things, yeah. And not just say, well, this happened, and so blah, that's why I'm, I have so many problems. Okay. okay, so the patterns of relating we learn in, this early, uh, in these early important relationships are called attachment styles. Okay, <laughs> I learned a new term today, attachment styles. And they play out across our lives. If we've had many positive interactions with those who care about us, we are much better uh, able to extend that warmth to our own children as well as to others and will be more motivated to do so. Okay, so if we've had positive interactions that we have interpreted as positive, Okay, or if we've had interactions that we've interpreted as positive and that we remember very well. Okay, so I really want to emphasize that it's not just the interaction, it's how we process it afterwards, even when we're quite little. 
Okay. If you ever talk to your siblings about things that happen, you know, in the family when you're young, you can, you may find that you, you both experience the same thing, but you remember it entirely differently. And your emotional reaction to it is also very different. Okay. Even though you and your brother or sister, you know, had the same experience. While infant uh, communication isn't very sophisticated, infants infants are good at communicating distress by crying and fussing. Uh, Only infinite infants? (laughs) Adults don't cry and fuss? Yeah? Hmm. Listening to some of the things that happened in the Oval Office uh, make me wonder, yeah, if you've been listening to the hearings, yeah. (laughs) When caregivers respond consistently with warmth and reassurance to an infant's distress, they create what is called a securely attached relationship with the infant. Okay, now... Remember, Russell wrote this, you know. I'm the Buddhist who's asking questions. Okay. Caregivers respond consistently with warmth and reassurance. Who ever responds consistently to anything? Yeah? We can say whoever responds more times than others with warmth and reassurance. But consistently, are any of us consistent? No, this is one character. We are consistent in being inconsistent. Okay, yeah. All we have to do is look at our own minds and our own responses and, and, you know, are we consistent? Mm-mm. Okay. Sorry, Russell, you aren't here to defend yourself. <laughs> That's the best way to debate when the other person isn't here. Um, yeah, but, you know, I think we get his meaning. You know, they they react warmly and, and with reassurance more often than not, okay. but not consistently. When this happens, children learn that when they need help, others will provide it. I'd like to qualify that. Children will learn that others will, uh, that they need help and others will most of the time provide it, but not always. Yeah, one of our problems is we expect others always to provide what we want. Yeah, this is our problem. Yeah? Okay. So the children learn to be soothed by others and to form soothing mental images of being cared for by others. They also learn to experience themselves as being worthy of love and care and are given a valuable model of how to behave when faced with others' distress, one that involves empathy and responsiveness. Okay? So when you have repeated episodes that are not, they don't have to be consistent, you know, then you learn these things and have a secure, attached relationship. But then you find people who grew up in families where this was not the case with the caregivers, and they still grew up to have, um, you know, uh, this expectation, not expectation, but this assurance that, you know, yes, I need help, and others are available to help me. Yeah? I mean, you find in one family, kids can grow up entirely differently. Yeah? When you look at your own family, are you like your brothers and sisters? Yeah, I'm not. 
Yeah. Just ask my brother and sister if they want to be Buddhist monastics. You'll see that we grew up with very different ideas. <laughs> okay. My dear brother once pointed that out to me, how we differ. And after that, he said, but we both have big ears and we both have eyes that are close to each other. Thank you, dear brother. (laughs) Yeah. I once went to his workplace and somebody was, uh, one of his colleagues kept looking at us and then she said, you two look so much alike. And I was thinking, okay, maybe we look alike, but, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Since compassion involves sensitivity to suffering and the desire to alleviate it, It's easy to see how having secure attachment relationships when we're growing up can give us a head start on experiencing compassion for others as we grow older. Okay, so if you grow up with people being kind, you know, you develop that outlook on life and you, you tend to, you may tend to see uh, yourself as wanting to be like that and give aid and support to others. But of course, you have some kids who grow up in families with wonderful parents and the kids are off the wall. Yeah. So it's the thing is, when you have a child, you do not know what you're getting. Yeah. I think a lot, how many of you have kids? Yeah. Did you know what you were getting when you had a kid? Did they, <laughs> did they surprise you? <laughs> okay. Secure attachment relationships bring many other benefits. They teach children to accept and label their emotions and encourage them to explore their worlds knowing that they have a place of safety, a secure base to which they can return. Yeah. And I once saw a, uh, a film uh, talking about uh, some kind of research a psychologist made with little kids and how little kids learn to uh, go out and investigate the world, but in a secure way. And his idea was that kids went out for, you know, a few minutes and then they came back to mom and dad and then they went out again and then they came back. And then, you know, he showed a film of that with the little kids and that's exactly what happened. You know, they would, they were little, little, you know, and they go out just a few steps, maybe come back, just look at mom and dad, then go out again. Come back and look. So always touching base, yeah, with uh, what they feel is secure, and then that enabling them to go out and be adventurous. Okay, and so some of us, you know, it's the same thing as adults. This isn't just childhood behavior. It's it's through teenage years and adults and so on. You know, we go out and we're kind of adventurous, and we want to come back to where we know it's safe, and then we go back out again. Or, well, we'll come to that. Okay, that was talking about the kids who grow up with secure attachment. Most of the time, not always. (laughs) Okay, so those of us who are well cared for usually have a much easier time feeling safe, comfortable, and at peace in ourselves and in the world. Okay? Unfortunately, not everybody grows up in warm, securely attached relationships or warm, securely attached environments. Yeah? I think of the children in Ukraine, you know, their their family may have had this kind of warm secure attachment relationships 
But from one day to the next, all of a sudden, dad is staying in the country. Mom is coming with you and the kids. You don't know where you're going. And your life is turned upside down. Okay. The relationship you started off with was secure. And maybe the relationship with mom continues to be secure. But maybe mom now is like totally panicked and freaked out because there she is with all her kids by herself without any income in another country where she doesn't know the the language and has to deal with that. Meanwhile, dad is now fighting a war. Okay, so it's... Um, it's not just the family. It's the whole environment in which we grow up in, you know. And the kids who 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 leave, they have, you know, they're they're going to have their own difficulties. Um, some more, some less. Also, depending upon how mom and dad react during that. Yeah, kids who stay behind, similar. Yeah, they'll be affected by their family and by the environment, you know, and especially in Ukraine. Which city are you living in? Yeah, are you in Lviv where there's not constant bombing, or, you know, are you in Kirsten and and what's going on there? So many, many, many different conditioning factors. In some cases, our caregivers may have been unable to provide us with a consistently caring and responsive environment, which can lead us to develop insecure attachment styles. This plays out in different ways, affecting our ability to feel safe in relation to others and how uh, able we are to engage with them. But it also depends. Maybe our parents aren't so able to do that, but our grandparents provide that, or a teacher does, or a babysitter. Okay, we can't put everything on our parents. And uh, there's a few of us here who have been teachers before we became uh, ordained. And it becomes clear to us that all it takes is one adult taking interest in a, a child to really change that child's life. So sometimes if the parents aren't able to, if there's somebody else who does, it really makes a big difference. Yeah. Okay, so some of us had early caregivers who were detached or unable or unwilling to nurture us so that we learned over time that no one would be there to help even in times of distress. In response, we may have developed an avoidant attachment style so that when distressed, we pull back and distance ourselves emotionally from others. We've learned our, our attempts to connect often won't be fruitful and that we won't be comforted when we're distressed. So we stop bothering with trying to solicit help from others. We also may be less likely to extend compassion to others because we haven't seen that behavior modeled for us. Okay, so that's a third style. So the, um, the, the second style were, were the parents, um, you know, Okay. Okay. The parents are unable uh, to provide us with consistent uh, caring, consistently with consistent caring and responsiveness. Okay. Now you you have that kind of family. Now, how do you grow up looking at your childhood experience? Okay. If you were born after Freud and learn some Freudian psychology or just heard it talked about in society, you would interpret that inability of your parents as the cause for your hang-ups and your neuroses and so on. 
if you were, for example, um, my parents' generation who grew up during the Depression and during the Second World War, you wouldn't necessarily interpret your parents' behavior like that because you recognize that the Depression, you know, and the war weighed down on your parents, okay? So you wouldn't have that same expectation. Or if you knew that your parents came from, let's say, uh, an alcoholic family background, you may not have that same expectation of what your parents would do for you because, you know, you you looked and you saw, you know, how your parents and grandparents related, okay? So what the thing I'm trying to get across is Russell is talking in a very general way, and we tend to make these things very concrete, yeah, without seeing the nuances and all the other conditioning factors, and without seeing our role in how we interpret and remember it, without seeing the environment that things happen in. Okay, and I think this is this is quite important, yeah? Because as soon as we start saying one cause, you know, then the implication is, well, I can't change unless we do something about that one cause. Yeah, but if you see it as, oh, there's many causes and conditions, then the mind is more open, more flexible, and we begin to see, okay, there's space to move here because many of the causes and conditions change. They aren't the same in later years or in different situations, okay? And that, I think, enables us to uh, revise our ideas and revise our responses rather than just thinking it's due to one thing, therefore I'm like this. Okay, are we getting? Yeah. Okay. So the second, the first one was the ideal family that none of us had. Yeah. The second one is the less ideal family that probably some of us had, um, where the, the caregivers have been unable to provide us with consistent caring and a secure uh, environment because of their own personal stuff or the environment around them. The third was caregivers who were detached or unable or unwilling to nurture us, so that we learn that nobody's going to be there when we uh, are in distress. And then the common reaction to that is we give, we just withdraw. And we say, it's no use, you know, I know I need help, but it's no use saying anything to anybody because nobody's going to respond anyway. Okay. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, so we tend to be emotionally distant from other people and harder to ext extend compassion. Okay, then the next one is some of us have grown up with caregivers who were unpredictable and dramatic, particularly, particularly in the face of our distress. Sometimes they were warm and responsive, but at other times they responded with rejection, harshness, or extreme emotional displays. In such cases, we may develop an anxious, ambivalent attachment style, okay? Finding ourselves very emotional and hypersensitive to any hint of rejection or perceived criticism. The reason being because we were never sure of how our parents or caregivers were going to respond in any particular situation, yeah? And that's how sentient beings are, <laughs> yeah? We have our habits, but we are not consistent. 
So we may have a hard time feeling safe in relationships for fear that they may end at any moment. Okay? Because sometimes the parent would be warm and comforting, and sometimes they wouldn't be there at all, or they would be very self-absorbed. So we may become preoccupied with ourselves and our perceptions of what others think or feel about us, obsessed with whether they like us, maybe uh, rejecting us, and so on. Okay, so anxious, ambivalent attachment style. So those are the four that he gives. Oh, no, there's a fifth. Finally, those of us who have been abused by our early caregivers may have learned to be afraid of close relationships with others, having discovered that if we get close to others, they will harm us. That's another one. Okay, so knowing different attachment styles helps us understand why some people seem to be more interested and capable of feeling and expressing compassion towards themselves and other people, while some of us we may, may struggle to do that. Yeah, so some people may want to be more compassionate, but they have some conditioning behind them that makes it difficult. So they have to really work with that. A number of scientific studies show that our ability to feel and act compassionately is related to our experience of secure attachment. People who have a history of secure attachments with their caregivers and hence have a secure attachment style uh, are more likely to experience compassion for others and to behave altruistically to help them. They have learned to value relationships and have good models for learning empathy and how to help others. Okay, now I want to use an example. May I, Geshe-la? <laughs> so Geshe-la, uh lost his mother when he was young. Yeah. Now, according to this thing, if you lose a parent when you're young, you know, that's going to adversely affect your compassion style and your ability to respond emotionally and so on. Okay. Geshe-la is a very compassionate person. Yeah. What happened when he was young, you know, is not a major factor in how he is as an adult. Yeah. True. No, the second part is true. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. That's why I looked at you and said true first. <laughs> okay. Uh, our attachment styles also affect our ability to feel and express compassion by shaping how we respond in the face of perceived threats. This plays out both in terms of how threatened we feel and our ability to soothe and calm ourselves. If we've had a history of securely attached relationships, we're able to draw upon some uh, upon soothing mental images of being loved and cared for. This can help to ease feelings of threat that might prevent us from feeling compassion. We're better able to tolerate and work with our feelings of discomfort, allowing us to then shift our focus to the suffering of others and how to help them. Okay, so the idea being the more we are able to calm ourselves and see things through a non-threatening or even through a forgiving way. You see the threats, but you forgive them. Then uh, the more we can do that, then the easier it is for us to express compassion. Okay, Those of us with insecure attachment styles may find ourselves responding to suffering in very different ways. 
if we've developed an avoidance style, we tend to revert to that style when we feel threatened or uncomfortable, pulling back into ourselves and withdrawing from others. Hmm? Focused on protecting ourselves and managing our own discomfort, we feel less connected to others and may be less likely to help them because we're, you know, concerned with ourselves, you know, involved with ourselves. Those of us who have anxious, ambivalent attachment styles may be deeply invested in helping others, but become distracted by our own emotions and insecurities. We may be so worried about others liking us that our attention constantly shifts to ourself, interfering with feeling compassion for others. So this kind of people-pleasing mode. You so much want other people to like you that you're focused on, you know, how can I do what they want and do they like me? Are they responding the way I want? And we're so involved with that that we can't really see the other people's experience, you know, and react with compassion. Okay, caught up in our own distress, we may have difficulty connecting with how others feel. When we do act to help others, our efforts may be skewed by self-interest, more based in the desire to improve our own image and likability than in genuine concern for others. Okay. We once, we like to do skits at the Abbey. We once did one about uh, um, People Pleasers Anonymous. Yeah. It was a great skit. Yeah, it was really good. Okay. Uh, we're going to keep going to finish this chapter. Okay. So Russell continues. Um, as I've said, awareness of the interaction between attachment style and compassion helps us understand why compassion will seem to come more easily and naturally to some of us and require more effort for others. Yeah. Just because it requires more effort doesn't mean it's hard and we shouldn't do it. Okay. It also, uh, the com understanding compassion styles also helps us recognize that we are not to blame for these differences. We didn't get to choose our caregivers or their capacity to give us consi uh, consistent, responsive, caring environments we needed in order to learn to feel safe in relationship to other people. Okay, so it's not the fault. It's not our fault. It's not our parents' fault either. Yeah. Seeing this, we can have compassion for those of us whose early life situations didn't foster secure attachments. When we see ourselves or other people distancing ourselves from suffering, we can understand that we are attempting to manage our own emotions. When we see ourselves or other people responding in dramatic ways, we will recognize this as a method we have learned to try and manage our own distress. That's in the case of the abuse people. With this awareness, we can respond with compassion rather than with annoyance. So when we have, when we're aware of these different uh, styles formed when we're quite early, uh, then when we meet people who are responding in diff different ways, we can understand that those are due to the kind of attachment style that they had growing up. And so instead of becoming impatient with them and criticizing them for not responding to distress, you know, in a certain way, you know, we become more patient and accepting and compassionate towards them, theoretically. But sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. When you're with somebody who's everything becomes a drama, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. But again, just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try and cultivate 
you know, patience and forgiveness and compassion for them. Hmm. While our ability to provide secure attachments for our children is impacted by our own attachment style and how we were treated as children, this conditioning is not cast in stone. Finally, he said it. (laughs) Okay. Um, It certainly doesn't mean we aren't capable of being compassionate people. However, we may find we need to put a bit more effort into managing our own emotions and to make efforts to help ourselves learn to feel safe in relationships. This can involve doing things such as seeking out and joining social groups with people who have similar interests and working to develop positive relationships with other group members. In other words, there's way to increase uh, your flexibility and how you uh, to change how you respond to uh, stressful situations. If we've had difficult attachment histories, any sort of close relationship may initially feel uncomfortable, but over time we can learn to trust others and value our relationships with them. So there is hope for us and for other people. There are a variety of ways to do this, including psychotherapy and joining supportive communities. Those with secure attachment styles may sometimes forget that not everybody relates to others with the same confidence that we do. When we are empathic, we can understand that certain people have the emotional patterns they do due to early upbringing and previous life habits, and their present environment, and other factors. (laughs) Realizing this can help reduce our annoyance or impatience with their emotional habits. Those of us with anxious, ambivalent attachment styles can practice differentiating between our own and others' emotions, learning to be responsible for our own emotions and not accepting responsibility for others' emotional patterns. Oh, the death of the people-pleasers. Yeah. Or the death of the people-pleasing of the (laughs) people-pleasers. Increasing self-confidence through learning to accept and work with our emotions without completely identifying with them helps calm the anxiety we feel when challenging emotions come up. Those of us with avoidant attachment styles can try to recognize that we're, try and recognize when we're pulling back from others and see if it might be better to try and connect, both with the emotions we're feeling and with others who might be able to help us. And the reflection for this one is reflect on how you usually relate to others. Okay. Now, this afternoon, we're not having a discussion session, unfortunately, because this is an important topic to discuss. Yeah, but maybe at the Abbey, we can have a discussion session some other time on this. Yeah. Can you recognize one of the attachment styles as applying to you? Okay, I recognize two applying to me at different times. Do you also see tendencies towards other attachment styles arise in certain situations? Yes. How does understanding the different attachment styles help you understand your caregivers and other people in your life? It certainly helps me. Under, you know, understand uh, where they're coming from. Yeah. And also what to expect out of them. Because when we expect things that they can't deliver on, then we're setting ourselves up for, you know, problematic relationships. Okay. Then consider your current relationships. 
Do you have relationships that are comforting and safe in which you receive and offer compassion and support? If not, try to imagine how you might create such a relationship in your life. Okay, so lots to think about there. So we went over a bit, but um, can we have a few minutes? Please, please, uh, will you be pleased if, if we have more? Yeah, will you still like it if I do? Are you going to criticize me? Yeah, and what about all the rest of you? I feel really insecure. Yeah, um, so one or two questions? Yeah. I just kind of want to get your opinion on this. Um, I feel like the Dalai Lama's assessment about cooperativeness is more accurate than survivors of the fittest because there's actually studies showing that like little kids like being cooperative, like, hey, yeah. give me my keys, you know, or do this. Scientific studies used to think it was just mimicking adults, but no, it's actually them yeah. naturally being cooperative. So I'm wondering if you feel like those virtuistic attitudes can arise despite like latencies from past life or nurtures versus nature. And also like, what are the, is the origin of those virtuous attitudes? Is that kind of a Buddha nature? Because some are seen as universally virtuous. Would you say that comes from Buddha nature or somewhere else? Ooh. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, what was the first question? <laughs> Do you feel like um, a virtuous attitude such as cooperativeness uh, can like naturally or spontaneously arise despite latency? Yeah, yes. And you do, you're absolutely right. You do see it in kids. I mean, kids want to help. They want to help. And that makes me wonder what happened to us as adults that we no longer want to help and we think other people should wait on us. You know, it's strange, isn't it? Because whenever you look with at kids, you know, young kids, and if you've been a teacher, you see it, you know. Can I help with this? Can I do that? They want to learn. They want to feel empowered to do things. What happened in our conditioning as we grew up that now uh, we, you know, what happened? It's not fair. We learn the idea of it's not fair. Yeah, and we learn to think that helping is work and work is undesirable. Okay, but work doesn't, you know, helping does not have to be work and work does not have to be undesirable. And we don't have to see everything in terms of is it fair or not. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that arises. I've seen that arise with, with kids. And it sometimes gets trampled on. Yeah. Because how we look th at things change later. And our other ideas then entrap, uh, entrap us. Yeah. Yeah, the origin. Um, I don't know, it might have something to do with, with Buddha nature, you know, in, in the sense that we kind of, um, we are social animals. And so we naturally have this feeling of wanting to engage with others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So today's teachings on uh, competition and cooperation are reminding me of something from the eight verses of training the mind. Mm -hmm. When someone out of jealousy mistreats me with abuse, slander, and so on, I shall practice accepting defeat and offering the victory to them. Mm -hmm. Is this related to the teachings? And could you talk a little bit of what offering the victory means? <laughs> yes, it is related. And Offering the victory to others. What an un-American statement. You know, Americans cannot tolerate offering the victory to anybody else. Okay. Because we 
is American exceptionalism, yeah, and unwillingness to accept that we are becoming more and more like banana republics. Um, Offering the victory to, to others in the thought training practice, what that means is it doesn't mean you have to cave in and do what other people want, because what other people want sometimes is not so wise and not so beneficial. What it means is that in your own mind, you have to stop the, this attitude of, I have to be victorious at all costs. Okay? For example, there's some people, yeah, who whenever there's an argument, they have to win the argument. And some of us may have had the experience, I think maybe all of us, maybe, of knowing that what we're saying in an argument is wrong, but we continue to say it and defend it because we want to win. Anybody here uh, ever done that? Yeah. Yeah, we know what we're doing is wrong, but I'm going to win. I'm not going to capitulate. Yeah. I had uh, one, one friend of mine was in marriage counseling with her husband, and the counselor told the husband, uh, you can either win the argument and be right, or you can love your wife. You can't do both. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's this kind of thing. It me so give the victory to others means I don't have to come out victorious in every discussion. I don't have to be the big shot in every activity. I don't have to be the one who's always noticed, who's always the, you know, everybody talks about how great I am and all this. Yeah. You give the victory to others. We see that we're one among many, you know. And then that gives the space, you know, when somebody is doing something that is harmful, we can say, you know, that's harmful. I'm not going to go along with it. So, you know, giving the victory to others doesn't mean, you know, sure, whatever you say, <laughs> yeah, you're victorious. Yeah. Um, so just more of an observation, a quick follow-up to the last one. Um, like, what like seems to me like what we're bombarded with in this culture is like, not only should we have the victory, but we should be loud and proud about it, right? Like I see it on bumper stickers all the time and I see it. I, I was driving by a high school the other day, loud and proud. And I'm like, I don't know. It just struck me that like, I just want to get a bumper sticker that says, I value humble and soft spoken rather than <laughs> loud and proud. <laughs> you know, like I've never seen a, 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 a sticker like that, but maybe, yeah. maybe it's out there. That at, actually, that's a wonderful idea for a bumper sticker. Yeah. And it wouldn't actually make people think. Yeah. Cause there is a value to be humble, to being humble and soft spoken instead of having to fill our, our energy, fill whatever space we're in with the rightness of who we are. <laughs> okay. So, so we're going to dedicate now. <laughs>